Or wasn't that your heart that I felt on the bed, in the bed, in between the sheets? I might have been confused by all the sweat. There was a lot of sweat, and I might be mistaken. Pardon me, or wasn't that your heart that I felt on the bed, in the bed, in between the sheets? I might have been confused by all the sweat. There was a lot of sweat, and I might be mistaken, but I felt a heart before, and I'm learning what a heart is for. I believe a heart is made to feel the things that lay in front of it. I felt a heart before, and I'm learning what a heart is for. I believe a heart is made to feel the things that lay in front of it. And I lay before you. Through my open door And it seemed it wanted to stay And stick around for just a little bit I've seen a heart before I could swear that yours was wanting more So I waited for you justice in the state no i've we've started also podcasting for my upper level class so now we do three different classes so there's been a lot of podcasting a lot of podcasting <laughs> this week has been filled with podcasting um I think yeah we're going pro after this week. <laughs> we're going pro we're waiting for the casper mattress to hit us up get that casper money or maybe that kombucha i mean some kind of gt gt's kombucha is <laughs> <Kombucha's> gonna get us <laughs> All right. Um, slash remote learning. <laughs> GT's remote learning. Um, so this piece that we're talking about today is on uh, Latin American immigration to the United States. And it 
really presents just sort of a brief historical picture of, of migration. Uh, it opens with this stat, which is that both the size and composition of the U.S. foreign-born population have grown since 1960, rising from 9.7 million to nearly 40 million in 2010. Latin Americans have been a major driver of this trend as their numbers soared from less than 1 million in 1960 to nearly 19 million in 2010. It's a lot. Yeah. 18 million more people in uh, in the course of 1960, from 1960 to 2010. Yes. So 50 years. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, another way also, if we think about migration as another sort of transnational flows, right? So we can think about and people living in other countries than where they originated. We have interesting, I think, things to uh, contribute to this kind of foreign relations or whatever we're, this class is kind of focusing on. So I think it's nice in that regard. Latin Americans are a very significant part of the population in the United States. Right, right. All right, from page 49, although most Spanish colonies had achieved independence by the middle of the 19th century, the newly independent republics were weak politically and militarily, vulnerable to external aggression. Given its proximity, Mexico proved an easy target for the expansion, expansionist aspirations of the United States. Under the terms of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the U.S.-Mexican War, 1846-1848, Combined with the Gadsden Purchase, the United States acquired almost half of Mexico's land. The significance of the annexation for contemporary immigration from Mexico cannot be overstated. Not only were social ties impervious to the newly drawn political boundary, but economic ties also were deepened as Mexican workers were recruited to satisfy chronic and temporary labor shortages during the 19th and 20th centuries, an asymmetrical exchange that was enabled by the maintenance of a porous border. Right. To be clear, we stole that land. Right, annexation. Right. I mean, it's an it's an interesting component of the of the um, build the wall moment. That I mean, obviously, people who are chanting "build the wall." I mean, I assume are you know ignorant of this history. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, ignorant or bellicose or both. Right. right? Maybe sure. Bellico ignorantly bellicose or I mean. Any combination. Right. So anyway, that's part of uh, the historical background of this piece is that part of a big part of the United States used to be Latin America. Um, right. 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 Used to be Mexico. Yes. Used to be Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The 19th century in the United States is pretty fucked up. <laughs> yeah, you know more about that than me. But I mean, that's like, like you've got in the same period. So the West is basically annexation of mexico mm -hmm. the south is a slave economy right the middle is skirmish land about slavery right and and some native, native american, american removal yeah right has happened to the middle and native lands are being expropriated for settlement i mean what a violent time. Yeah. What a violent time. Absolutely. Okay. But that's that will all be covered in government two forty nine <laughs> next semester. Yeah, if you want to get if you want, if you want to get a little more Joel 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 thoughts. Joel thoughts. Yeah, that's a 
fun place to live. All right, page 49. 50 years after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the United States intervened in Cuba's struggle for independence against the Spanish crown, which lost its colonies, lost its last colonies in the Americas and the Pacific region. As part of the settlement, the United States acquired Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, and was ceded ter- temporary control of Cuba. Both the U.S.-Mexican War and the Spanish-American War established foundations for U.S.-bound migration. Mexico and Cuba have been top-sending countries for most of the 20th century and into the 21st, with the Philippines ranking second since 1980. Okay. Yeah. And that... uh, I think some of this stuff was also wrapped up with slavery. It was, actually, yeah. Right? Partially, anyway. Right. At least partly. At least partly. Yeah. Anyway, part of this I like, I mean, it connects a little bit back to some of the earlier stuff we talked about in class, you know, certainly about the Spanish-American War. We didn't really get go back far enough to talk about the Mexican, the loss of the Mexican territory. But um, I think one of the things that we do see here um, is that, I mean, it's a connection of our actions to some of the sort of, I mean... To be clear, I don't think migration is a problem, but right, it is currently, as we talked about for the last class, being portrayed as this very big political problem, political issue. Um, it's an issue. But the, this is is very much tied to our our, our history, right? That it, mm-hmm. I mean, it has certainly current incarnations, but there are historical sort of paths and legacies of our our interventions that we see kind of again and again. Um, bubbling up, right? So we talked a little bit about the the Central American Civil Wars, but here we can even look back farther and see some of these links coming from our even earlier mm-hmm. interventions mm-hmm. into politics in the region that then have affected, mm-hmm. you know, the shape of migration to the U.S. Right. We're creating historical conditions that continue, like, we're creating attachments and pathways that continue to be used. Correct. Remain active. And then occasionally we have, you know, um, politicians, U.S. politicians using the continued activation of these pathways of migration as components of domestic political conflict. Mm-hmm. But these they're not going anywhere. Right, right, right. right. And in fact, to solve the problems would be to to deprive political elites in the United States of valuable issue space. space. I mean, possibly, yeah, we could certainly think about it. And we'll think about that a little bit. I guess we could think about that as we think about more contemporary politics and how it all plays a part in this, of whether we really actually want to, like, scare quotes, solve this problem. Right. I mean, there's a certain way that you could look at issue evolution theory from American politics. Sorry. It's like all I can do is bring it into my own areas of expertise. Yeah, well, this one's closer to your... It's uh, a lot closer, but yeah. right, I mean, like incorporating something into the sort of normal two-dimensional issue space, like that's exactly what the political parties try to do, right? Like you don't try yep. to solve it, right? Like no right. one tries to solve these right. problems, right? right? You try to make interventions that like continue to support your constituencies and provide your constituency with goods and provide you with opportunities for position taking and distributional politics. But like you don't solve a problem. Right. Right. Like 
I don't know, just be skeptical of anyone talking, like any national political figure that talks about a problem. Like, they don't want to solve it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see reasons for that even more so as we as we look more recently. Right. Right. And I, to be clear, I guess it's not – I'm not trying, trying to be cynical. I'm just describing the world as it is. I know. Well, I, now I'm getting all confused. But we were talking about symbolic politics for my other class. But, I mean, part of this is – and I don't think we talked about this when we were talking about the migrant caravan. But, I mean, there's a big chunk of this that is symbolic politics, which, of course, has – real world serious implications yeah. i mean the i mean this is very much jumping ahead but the article actually ends with this um i mean it's a little bit weird because it's like it's well anyway but it, it ends until we get there well i was just gonna I say like the, the, the no this is just sort of a side note in their conclusion but i mean it, it talks about it's related to the symbolic politics part and the way this relates to what we talked about for last class um which is that, you know, like the this kind of symbolic politics that then creates things like racial profiling, Supreme Court decisions that allow people to stop immigrants and ask them for their papers, which then, you know, really dramatically shifts the ability of racial profiling of especially uh, Latin Americans that have more indigenous features, right? right. So this is like, right. Right. you know, very much. Now, we were talking in Latin America and the world the other night about just like maybe we just open them up. The borders. Oh, the borders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was just me. I think as we were a, having some thought experiment. Yeah, thought experiment. Well, this is certainly uh, going to provide grist for that little thought mill. I th- I think I don't know if I gave you quotes on that, but I mean, this is really yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, here we go. We're getting into the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act. Uh, in principle, marks a shift in the focus of U.S. immigration policy toward a growing emphasis on enforcement. Then the 1996 Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act, Jesus, which <laughs> it's intensified got like a lot of letters, fortification right? of the border, expanded criteria for deportation, and made a half-hearted effort to strengthen interior enforcement through employment verification pilot program. Both of these programs were paired with legalization programs. So, in other words, just this is all, like... The fact that they're paired with legalization programs is what? Well, so I guess that, I mean, I put this in here partly. There's not too much to talk about it. Maybe I should have just sort of said this one. But, that I mean, first of all, we, for most of our history, didn't actually care about enforcement at all. Okay. Right? Like, we weren't trying to send Latin Americans home in the same way that that has become a policy Right. Since then, right? right? But that that policy is relatively recent, right? Um, in terms of our immigration law, that it didn't always look like that, right? right? So that I think that is kind of important because I think we could feel like, oh, it's always been like this, but it it hasn't Since the actually Reagan years. always been like this. Since the Reagan years, mm-hmm. and and not even right. I mean, it's like starts increasing, but still kind of haphazardly. Really, a Clinton era problem. Right, the 90s. The 90s, a NAFTA problem. Right, this very well may have been part of the bargaining around NAFTA. Naturally. I don't actually know don't enough know about either. that, but that's 96, would it would have been after so, NAFTA. Yeah. A nice little bone to your protectionist racists in the Democratic and Republican parties. Potentially. I don't know. I don't know how this one went down. I don't know enough about these laws in the U.S., but... 
All right. So, page 59, the growth of undocumented immigration since 1960 is not only a distinctive feature of the current wave of mass migration, but also a direct consequence of selective enforcement of U.S. immigration laws. As of March 2010, an estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants resided in the United States, down from a peak of nearly 12 million in 2007, but 29% higher than the 2000 estimate of 8.5 million. Latin Americans make up over three-fourths of undocumented residents, with 60% from Mexico alone. The collapse of the housing and construction industries during the Great Recession fostered the first significant decline in the size of the undocumented population, reversing two decades of continuous growth. So just a lot of undocumented immigrants. Well, and and this coincides with closing down some of the paths of legal entry. Right, because the right. flows continue. The flows right? don't I mean, change in a certain regard. So one of the things that happens in this period, which I don't remember if it was mentioned, that quote was the end of the Bracero program, uh-huh. um, which was a way for agricultural labor to come in legally and temporarily, in many cases, going back, you know, off season, you would go home right. and right. You would come back to the States during whatever the growing season was. Some of them, I think, were here more permanently in the year. But, um, but yeah, it was a sort of agricultural labor program, which was, you know, active for, you know, 40s through the 60s, I want to mm-hmm. say. Um, I think it ends in 64. So that you have this, you know, it's also one of the ways that people were coming in legally that then ends, that then... So why is there not like a why is there not like a EU but for the Americas? Well, probably because um there's much greater inequality in the Americas across like between countries right. so, than in in Europe. Right. So the so greater regional integration would require I mean, we love playing the part of Germany, you know, like tisk tisking everyone for being irresponsible already. So, like, you're saying that, that well, but the EU provides actually quite a lot of equality, right? So, you're saying that in order for some kind of greater regional integration, there would have to be a significant redistribution between these economies. I th- I think. I mean, like where you see the most extensive. Integration is smarter. What'd you say? Seems like that'd be smarter. (laughs) Like, well, you see it with like, okay, so Mercosur has like, I mean, I don't know, you know, how. Anyway, that's like one of the decently long-standing blocks that has had some tough, Mm -hmm. tougher goes of it, but which is we're talking primarily the wealthier southern cone countries, right? right? And then you see NAFTA, of course, which, you know, Mexico has one of the largest economies. In the region, um, right, right, but it just—I guess all I'm all I'm saying is that like it strikes me. I guess it just strikes me as really cruel. I guess that we that we have um, so many restrictions on the movement of labor between all of these countries that are so clearly interconnected, and that like economic and political pressures are clearly moving people and like we're not stopping it and so i guess it feels a little bit like i guess that 
I guess it just seems cruel. Right. And I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is, okay, so there are push factors that got talked about in this piece, which are everything that from things like that we talked about last week of like, right, right, with like gang violence or other kinds of political violence um, that you see, but also natural disasters and and also economic factors, right? Poverty and inequality, economic crises, right? Right. Um, Which are also in many cases paired with kind of you know, global kind of neoliberal economics, right, which have created different kinds of moments of crises. Um, Not to say that to blame it all entirely on on that, but the the sort of the global economy is part of this story, right? Do you know what I mean? Financial flows. Right. Are paired with labor flows. Right. But we try to restrict labor flows because working people are weaker than bankers. But one of the things that I think is actually interesting here is that for whatever we see on the push side, right, um, mm-hmm. the factors that are, you know, pushing people out of their home countries, the, I think that the pull side is very interesting in terms of the, you know, if you think about what people are being pulled to the U.S. F- by, um, mm-hmm. that you really see that really the only moment of decline in um, is the crash. these flows is the, the crash, crash, right? That, like, it's not worth coming. It would be interesting to see what happens with this whole COVID situation. I mean, who right? knows, who knows right? what is I mean, it's so much larger than the crash situation. of 2008. Who knows? Right? And it's it's a different But it's so global, too. I mean, it's, it's like... I mean, that recession was global, too. But, I mean, this, I think, is going to be so enormous that it's hard to even imagine what yeah, the what's gonna do to the flow of people? consequences are going to be. Jesus. Yeah, no, I mean, it's crazy. It will remain crazy. Uh, Page 59, several factors have fueled the growth of unauthorized migration from Latin America, beginning with the abrupt termination of the Bracero program in 1964, which you just mentioned. I did, yes. Following a 22-year period during which the U.S. growers became dependent, uh, agricultural producers became dependent on pliable Mexican labor. In some ways, the 1965 amendments to the INA, Immigration and Naturalization Act, constructed an illegal immigration system by default because the disproportionate focus on family visas gave short shrift to labor needs. Yeah, so one of the things that this article talks quite a bit about is how um, our immigration policies have favored family uh, unification and that there then became put... Which is fine. Um, of course. It, even we could think about that as good, humanitarian, right? Bringing families together. Um, it's, But then there was restrictions placed on geographic restrictions, basically. Okay. okay. Um, which have always, we've always had geographic restrictions. It talks a little bit about some of the very racist aspects right. of that, mentions that in this paper. But in this in the seventies, in this sort of weird effort to I think eliminate some of that, they made more uniform caps, and that okay. actually hurt the Latin American entry. Interesting. Um, Interesting. And created these serious backlogs in terms of the sort of family reunification stuff. But it also um because of the sort of prioritization there okay. and then the fact that it was capped meant that you were again those worker flows were coming in, were like necessarily then pushed into the sort of unauthorized route. And if you think about the sort of family flows too, they may have been, if you, if you imagine that at least some of that was being driven by 
men who had come over as workers and then we're trying to bring, bring over families, wives right. or, you know, that these aren't necessarily going to be um, the right match for, you know, who the agricultural grower is looking to hire. Right. 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 So we have a moralized immigration policy right. that has to be not adapted, but that that uh, large employers are attempting to, like, navigate. Right. Right. Who don't have really moral concerns. No. Right. I mean, maybe individually, but as a general structure, right? Right. Like, right. businesses aren't really, like, right. they're not about family. No. Like, <laughs> they want workers. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And that I mean the other thing it's is an that interesting complexity. This is all tied the family part is very very much tied to the historical component, right? That these are people who have been here long enough to be thinking about family unification kind of things are in fact the Latin Americans who have had this long history, especially Mexicans, but well, and especially from northern Mexico, right? I mean like shit, like we're talking about like people returning to ancestral land. Right, right. I mean, or well, I mean, think about some of the. I mean, I don't know how whether any of you guys. I know some of you are. At least I know there's some of you that come from the southwest, but right. I mean, like some of those border families are so mixed between. Yeah. You know, I feel like we have some friends that have a farm on the border that are that he grew up on the U.S. side, but I mean, you know, it's just it just strikes me. It's just so. It's just bananas. Uh. Page 60, because IRCA's employer sanction, sanction provisions were never seriously enforced, unauthorized immigration rose during the 1990s when the housing and construction industries, both dominated by unskilled workers, expanded. Weak interior enforcement basically left in place the linchpin of unauthorized immigration, namely employers' ability to hire unauthorized foreign workers essentially without reprisal. Right, so... Just another example of like, uh, uh, I guess it's another example of the, it's, I guess I, I feel like all of the political discussion of this issue, immigration, is just so patently cynical that like everyone knows, like. Well, and it's like, I feel like it's also this kind of, I don't know, I was sort of thinking about it. It's like the thing where you're like, I don't know where you're telling your kid not to keep watching television, but you do absolutely nothing to make them stop watching television, right? <laughs> you know, where you're like, okay, yeah, or, enough no, TV. And then I like... Think, I feel like it's actually more like, you bought the biggest, awesomest TV. <laughs> right, right. And you have it on all the time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you're like, don't watch it. <laughs> right, right. You're an asshole. Right. Like, if you did that to your and kid... And then like, occasionally... Like making some kind of punishment of like go to your room, <laughs> stay in your room, right? And then you turn up the fucking TV, <laughs> right? Right. Give I me mean, five dollars for watching that. Right. It's like, I mean, I guess it's the part where it's like no thinking person, right, could imagine any other outcome, right, other than an explosion of unauthorized immigration right and i mean like i guess i also feel like i feel like even giving it the modifier of unauthorized is already too much of a concession like wait we are we are authorizing authorizing it it in a certain way right (laughs) yeah like 
Yeah. Well, and of course, I mean, if we think back to these like illegal industry parts, I mean, when you make that illegal, um, the next step is that a whole industry springs up around false documents and around, right? I mean, because all the employer has to do is have this plausible deniability that like, why well, didn't know? I thought they had the papers. Oh, uh, papers are bad papers. <laughs> I mean, good to me. Yeah, it doesn't matter how shitty the papers look as long as the guy can be like, right, they had the papers, then, you know. Right. You're all good. And then, so then it just seems like, it just seems like the 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 people who want to inflame who who want to electioneer on this problem are some of the most cynical people imaginable who are who are trying to play on i mean well, I think it's an interesting, I mean, if we're going back to talking about your area, right, of like the American politics side, I mean, my experience here is that it's an interesting, like, I don't know what what you would call it, but like a kind of cross-cutting, like desires or loyalty or whatever, where you end up with these weird things where in a certain regard, you would expect these kind of like anti-immigrant kind of political appeals to play to some of these certain groups but then it's an odd tension because they actually rely on mexican central american workers to actually run their business and then in the process of that i mean one of the things that i did right before grad school as you already know um was work for this rural um development ngo um that was doing uh, work with basically tobacco farmers uh, in rural North Carolina. And it's too convoluted to talk about what was going on with tobacco at the time, but um, one of the things that I was doing was going out and interviewing these farmers about sort of what they were up to. And a number of them worked with, um, I mean, I don't know, what their legal status was. Some of them were legal, the, they were H-2A workers, which if we had ended up reading um, the other reading that I ended up cutting for today, which is about guest worker programs, it's a kind of a modern-day Bracero program, right, that's allowing for sort of legal temporary entry. Um, but it created these weird, very rural North Carolinians that had, like, I mean, a sort of strange relationship, I think, in some cases with you know, thinking of what their thoughts were about Latin American people, Mexican people, Central American people, but that they were like part of their community. And, you know, so I think it like has some strange, has some strange, uh, I think there's some strange brews out there in terms of that, you know. I guess it's a strange, I mean, yes, obviously, right? Because individual human people are capable of compassion, sympathy, you know, they are, we are relational creatures who form relationships with people that we're in habitual contact with. But I guess I still feel like, I still feel like the end game here is, is somehow trying to knit together a coalition of like, like we need low income, low education voters 
in coalition with high income voters. Right. Like, yeah, and I... so you create so you look for issues that can somehow I don't know. I, I guess it still feel I guess what I all I'm getting at here is that I I feel like I've been walking around saying this but it's it it just is empirically the case that the contemporary Republican party seems to be largely driven by um by serving interests on both sides of this issue. Right. right. Well, I guess so you would think that then the the under enforcement is how it's serving the business the high Correct. income. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I could see that, right? I mean, that as long as there has to be this sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge that you are able to still get your labor, then and it doesn't the part matter that seems what so kind cynical of appeals. To me and right. like that just strikes me as like you're assholes all around, right? Like you're wink, wink, nudge, nudging like, oh, yeah, <laughs> let's get these rubes all riled up about the browns. But, you know, we're not really. I mean, you know what I mean? No, I mean, I do. And it just feel. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to see it a different way, right? Right, and like clearly, it's fine politics, right? Like as a rational strategy, right? It's clearly working, right? And well, we've seen we see strategies like this all the time in all kinds of ways, where right, getting people upset over other groups and other skin colors or other, you know, like, I mean, even in places where everyone is the same ish skin color of like different, of you know, whatever, like of ethnic it's... kind of markers. And I mean that this is like a political strategy that can, it's, you know, it's just easy. serve certain it's political easy to elites. Do. It's easy to do. And you don't have to be super intelligent or super skilled to manage it. Right. Like you, unleash... I, bet, I bet you underestimate the, 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 the political savvy it takes to pull something like a racist appeal off. Mm, I bet to do it well takes more than. I don't even want to. I don't even want to engage all that. Yeah. Well, anyway. I mean, this. I guess it's just like when I read these facts, right? And like, right. I know what I know, and I. It just strikes me as like. No, I mean it's it's, it's, we, it's depressing. Right. Right. I guess it's depressing. I mean, it's depressing that we, like, have a policy where we are, like, clearly wink, wink, nudge, nudging the business community that it's, like, fine. And then we're saying at the same time at the current moment, right, rounding up people at work and putting them in immigration jail, right? I mean, that this is, and like... we've been doing it across. We've been doing it for... We've been doing it with many presidents, like, right? Right. This isn't just a Trump phenomenon. No, I mean, with Obama Clinton, right? and I mean, Obama and... deported more people than... I mean, I don't know yeah. what by the end of Trump's presidency he may have taken Obama's reign on that. I don't know. But, I mean, Obama deported tons and tons of uh, Latin Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. So it's certainly not a, a single party... You know, and like you said, this sort of real enforcement pickup starts under, well, I guess if it starts under Reagan, but really seems to more intensify under Clinton, you know, that these are Democrats that are doing this sort of politics. And again, sometimes I think horse trading, you know, theoretically, Obama was trying to get, you know, a a, a comprehensive immigration deal. And so part of his, you know, the way he was going to get it was going to be this like enhanced enforcement. And then he actually draws back against the enhanced enforcement once he realizes he's not going to get right shit on what he wants and so like you know you get this sort of mixed policy there but but yeah i mean it's been happening and it is really i mean it's like the sad part where it's like the business 
businesses are taking much less heat over this and these like poor people that have had these harrowing journeys right it's part the saddest right you know getting another harrowing uh, experience right right let's let's keep moving here because this one seems to say a lot of what we're saying and in, in a little bit more pithily than than I'm able to to do right now. Page sixty: An appraisal of Latin American immigration exposes numerous instances where extant laws have been systematically disregarded or applied in a capricious or discriminatory manner. Striking examples include the preferential treatment accorded to Cuban immigrants compared with Haitians who arrived on U.S. shores in similar situations. Yeah, it had, did not even talk about that, but that's fucked. The explicit <laughs> protection of employers who hire unauthorized workers by not holding them accountable for violating the law, and differential treatment of asylum applicants according to national origin. Fairness is not a defining feature of U.S. immigration policy toward Latin Americans. Yeah, right. I mean, you're not interested in fairness. No. Not interested. I mean, you're not. In, you're just interested in having, I guess this is what I keep going back to, is like you're just interested in being able to continue to make hay out of this well, but also Issue. you need these workers. Right. So, I mean, it's like a split policy because it's not just... Well, it serves both ends, right? Yeah. <sighs> Joel's going to be real depressed. It's so dark. Page 61. Historically and in the present, Latin American immigration has afforded the United States myriad economic benefits, including lower prices for goods produced in industries that employ immigrant workers... Increased demand for U.S. products and higher wages and employment for domestic workers. That new immigrants accounted for half of the growth in the labor force during the 1990s added significantly to the economic prosperity enjoyed by average Americans. So we reap the benefits of a kind of like, yeah, of, of, a, of a fairly cruel system. The average American. Right. Mm-hmm. Statistically speaking, mm-hmm. right? Maybe not at a personal level. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just come back again, like blow them all open. Let's just open it up. I guess it's just politically infeasible. What does do? Would Latin American countries want open borders? Probably not, right? Would they lose all their population? I don't know. I don't know what they would want. Who knows? This is real funny, though. So when I was in college, when I was an undergrad, I had this political science professor. I thought she was awesome. And we were reading this, like, kind of feminist IR stuff. And it was about Europe and the European Union and all this kind of stuff. And initially... The articles in this edited volume or the chapters in this edited volume were like setting up, again, this thing of this, right? I mean, in a way, we should be like, yeah, tear the borders down, open the borders, like global governance, right? And so there was a lot that was sort of sort of leading in I, that. I didn't say anything about global governance. <laughs> there was a lot leading in this direction. But one of the things that happens, I mean, this is part of the thorny problem of like, what if you tore down all the borders is like, well, okay. So where does governance happen once there's no state or once the state is enormous or once the right once the defining feature of the state is not a, is not a is not border control I don't know it's in if you take my <laughs> if you were in the beginning of the violence justice in the state class I mean borders are a pretty central part of stateness 
Angel's rolling his eyes over there. Well, in any case, when one of the... about Migdal? <laughs> well, Migdal thinks, actually, the borders are more porous. Um, but the... Anyway, the story that I was in the middle of, Sorry. which it gets to when it gets to the global governances, I mean, one of the things that you do see is like, A, I mean, in terms of this book was interested in particular too on women's representation, right, declined precipitously, right? And like you're far, much farther away from your kind of elected officials um, in this context. So, I mean, it's like, I guess a curious thing. I mean, I certainly would feel like if I was one of the smaller Latin American countries, I would be worried to think about, you know, I mean, they already have the problem of having the U S walk all over them kind of, you know, and then like add to that some kind of non you know, like at least now they can make claims to sovereignty as we see over and over again in the course and like in the OAS and right. Right. Like all these claims to sovereignty are being made. And even if they're not being respected in spirit necessarily, there is some, you know, kind of ability to use that to kind of stand up and defend yourself and whatnot. So, you know, I think that there would be some, concerns there and of course as we all also talk about like i mean the u.s doesn't have a monopoly on doing things like you know using racist rhetoric to like you know i mean this also happens all over the place and right. you know there are domestic elites in latin america who benefit from the status right. quo and right. like benefit right. greatly from the status quo and, uh, and i would not necessarily want you know I mean, I'm not saying that they want deportations and, you know, they certainly also benefit from the remittances that are coming back from Latin Americans and, you know, that's important right. to but, these I mean, economies. You've got, but... you got that, that pink wave in Latin America that those particular post-Chavez leaders on the left who, right, having the United States be have this totally fucked up immigration policy be so obviously racist this is really helpful potentially useful certainly potentially useful. for the i mean the pink tide was very i mean if you, it was very domestic i'm sure right no, no. i was gonna say it was very varied actually so I like see. that it, so this was like we talked about this i think a little bit in this class i talk about it more in my other latin america my just straight latin american politics class but there was a big kind of sweep of left-wing leaders in the region that happened starting in the late 90s and going into the 2000s, though it's reversed quite substantially. Uh, it's There's yeah. very few, as you guys know from the OAS simulation, right? Yeah. I mean, you sort of saw how weak the left was in, in terms of how many allies yeah. there were. Um, but you had leaders like Chavez, obviously, um, Evo Morales to some degree, that were more in that Castro mold of like using the u.s as a real punching bag kind of like enemy you know the colossus of the north that they were standing up against and then you had plenty of countries that really were on the left like bachelet in chile and Mm -hmm. um even like lula in brazil that were more like really wanted to play economic ball with the u.s and just were doing more redistributive policy right um so it was very varied i think there I, i don't think some of the countries and i mean there's like some of the in South America, I mean, there's not in this moment. You know, there was, like, Argentinian migration to the U.S. during the some of the years of the dictatorship, but, like, there's not 
this is not like a major sending country of people. Um, so the U.S. immigration right. policies is far less matters far less to Chileans and Argentines. <laughs> so you know. a question then, which is just kind of wrap it up with another thought experiment, right? So I, I take I take your point on thinking about like this radical solution of open borders also creating lots of difficult and sticky problems that are like more than just more than just problems in the United States, right? That like beyond the impossibility domestically of something like this. So what happens in a scenario in which real incomes rise for most Americans, right? Wages rise, greater worker protections so that you've got in general a tighter labor market in the United States. Like does this does this slow immigration or does it well i mean it's actually like the the or thought, does it hasten immigration i was going to say the thought experiment is actually a little bit probably not even useful to have because we have an aging population and all right so we are short we tend to be short on labor right right so we don't have right. a labor well i don't know if that actually your experiment was where what's happening? There's like better wages and better social protections. Yeah, I'm saying that I'm saying that we're we are creating a better world for workers in the United States. Right. I mean, I don't think that eliminates our need for additional workers given our current economic model, even if we added to that economic model better labor protections. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so like a greater, a greater, um, greater redistribution in the United States mm -hmm. isn't going, doesn't have much of an effect on immigration. I mean, I don't know if anyone has written about that. It's not, I don't, I mean, probably someone has, right. I don't, it's not something that I, um, would necessarily think think would matter i would think it would matter more okay. i mean if we were stricter with employers about you know i mean some of these one of the things that happens with some of the undocumented workers is they're treated like you know i mean the title of the the report that i was going to give them from southern poverty law center is something like you know guest workers close to slavery or something right which you see in some of these instances they're you know, basically their passports are confiscated, they're in terrible conditions, they're often That's robbed awful. of their pay. I mean, it's like, right. and so that they're actually, I mean, better rights for workers, whether they were here. I mean, and those people are often coming legally right through these H-2A programs, but the recruitment is so terrible. Uh, they're exploited right. in so many moments along the path. You know, and I mean, I think certainly that would be better for everyone if we weren't, I mean, maybe not as good for our consumers getting our cheap fucking tomatoes or whatever, um, mm -hmm. but for, you know, whatever the moral fabric of our society right. is, what you know, like right. treating people not like that. Um Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think it could substantially impact the lives of a variety of, you know, migrant workers, that kind of thing. I mean, we know that um, 
certainly in the like meatpacking plants in the Carolinas where I grew up, there right. was they were filled with Latin American, you know, primarily Mexican, Central American yeah. workers that yeah. were, yeah, yeah. you know, locked into these factories and, you know, working under pretty awful conditions. And so, I mean, I think I'm not sure what effect it would have on migration, but it could certainly have a better human, right. you know, like right. <laughs> outcome. <laughs> right. Right. Well, this, I don't know whether, I mean, uh, this reading sounds like it was a downer. Uh, it was, I, I mean, I think. Or did I just bring some down energy? I think you just energy. brought some downer energy. This reading was actually pretty, I don't know what you guys thought. I thought it was like pretty like, well, then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then these things happened. And so it was like a little less, there was a little bit of uh, editorializing isn't right, but like kind of like, you know implication kind of stuff mm-hmm. at the very end. Okay. Um, but most of it really was just a history of yeah, yeah. of what it looked like. So it didn't read like a downer to me, I don't right. think, even though, um, you know, I mean, to me, it was just so stark the way in which, I mean, and I think, again, we see this kind of thing in this class of like the way in which that, and I mean, again, this is high politics, right? We're thinking national level politics here where it's like, I mean, especially having taught it after the the sort of caravan and, again, the current rhetoric that's unavoidable to sort of think about, you know, immigration in this moment with the Trump right. sort of, you right. know, policy of, you know, these are rapists and whatever, bad, bad what is it bad called? Hombres. Bad hombres or whatever. So, you know, it's like, I mean, you can't sort of take that away from your read of this, but sort of thinking about, you know, this the sort of vilification of, of, you know, like principally Mexican, Central Americans, people from the Caribbean, like, yet this is so fundamentally tied to our historical development, to our own economy, and in ways which are like, it's not like, oh, these are parasites. I mean, it's just like, well, we have created a lot of the situations that have led we're to... We're part of the region. We're the part of the region, exactly. Like, we're not not part of the region, and we are very tied because we've had a very interventionist foreign policy and in we have region. a very big economy in, the, in region. the region. And so that these things are, you know, byproducts of the fact that we are an American state amongst many right. American states, right? We're not the only America. There are a, then, like, a lot of countries, you know. The and world is a sphere. Yeah. And we're interlinked, you know. I mean... Yeah. So I think that that I actually liked the article in that way um, of just really, I thought, highlighting those linkages that go back that look, you know, that cross many different kinds of linkages, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think I can see how you took it to the downer spot given our current moment. Right. Yeah, I think that's part you know, of it. In our current moment where, I mean, even now it's this, you know, pandemic, right, where it's like, who can we blame, right? right. Well, can we blame China? Can we blame the who? Like, you know, yeah, like, right, that there's all this sort of sense of, of looking to sort of blame some external force as though we're not part of this global world, right? You yeah. Know? Yeah, I think that's what I think that's what gets me feeling a little bit downer about it. And just, I mean, I guess it's just like that's this is the 
Yeah, I mean, it's just the world that I came of age in, right? Like, my political awakening began with the Clinton years. Right. Right? And, like, it's just been a nonstop feature of it. Right. right. You see it, Democrats, Republicans alike. You see it left. You see it right. You see it center. You see just people, like, loving to, you know, talk about immigration as if they know fuck all about it. Right. right? Well, that's People do that with everything. <laughs> I know. But I guess it's like these are like real human lives. Right. You Absolutely. know what I mean? And like Absolutely. there's like real human costs and real human like interpersonal violence and state violence. Like it's just like, I don't know. I guess when I think about it and I think about the ways in which immigration has been this nonstop issue right. for my entire political life. Right. It just... It's just to to confront the history of it and to think about it in that kind of episodic way through these little quotes where I'm filling in the blanks with my right. own right. memories Absolutely. and my own life experience. I just think, God, this is like it just it just reminds me of all the depressing things that I've heard out of the mouths of like generation a generation of politicians. Right. Right. You know. Right. And yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that we've. Seen... I'm not sure the Bernie Bros would have been any better. On migration, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, protectionist. Not, I'm, I'm not convinced. Left wing. I'm not racist. convinced. I'm not convinced Fuck. either. I'm not. Not any individual. Not any just individual. Same about just, with the Trump just racism same as, this as, a, the, as a as a as a as an abstraction. Yeah, as an abstraction. Not wanting to tie it to any individual. I know. I know. We were all in for Bernie. Not we personally. I know that as a generation. <laughs> just saying, like. <laughs> It just is a bummer thinking about immigration as a as a political issue as an American political scientist. Well, and I mean, I think in a certain regard, one of the things that you saw, I think that Bernie and Trump both inspired, though I think in different ways. And I mean, whatever, and our other Democrat, Biden, is, I mean, similar. And I think in this regard, another of protectionist? Like, yeah, with like this sort of idea. When I was that, in Scranton. <laughs> this idea oh. that we can pull that global... I mean, community makes it sound really warm and fuzzy, but like that, like somehow we could just like check out from the from the globe. Which, I mean, like the train done passed for that. Like, there's no like you know, yeah, checking I mean, out. Like, if 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 we needed evidence of that, this pandemic sure as shit should be giving it to us that you don't get to like. There's no outside. No, like you know, like it's one one world, man. Yeah. One love. Some reggae to end this one. Well, maybe we'll find something. All right, right, guys. Have a good night. Enjoy.